Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. You, yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, and pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joy, aha moments, and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. We'll share topics that tradition tells us there's some things you just don't talk about. But not here. Here we live beyond the wreckage. Each week we start right where we are. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Should you miss us, you can catch our podcast. Just go to YouTube, key in Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. And if you feel like communicating with me offline, we've been having some fun. Just email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so very much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Our theme this month has been, thank you for your service then and now. I continue to be passionate about celebrating veterans and active duty military who continually help us sustain and maintain our quality of life often at the greatest of cost. This November and December, we have heard stories through diverse lenses to include wars, fought, age, gender, race, family impact, and especially cultural and social legacies. Our stories have included Mary Jessie Herrera, 100-pound, 20-year-old military policewoman, who was accessorized by an M-16 and a 9-millimeter sidearm in Iraq. After being wounded in ambush while taking prisoners to Fallujah and 20 operations of putting her arm back together, she's raising two lovely daughters and has her master's degree. George Bodie, an African-American officer in Vietnam, had to manage the social and cultural implications resulting from this being the first United States fully integrated war, which also saw the highest proportion of blacks ever to serve in an American war. We have heard heart-to-heart informative stories from women who decided to serve in Vietnam as nurses, librarians, and social support personnel. We've also heard of some unusual consequences of those very choices We cried with the stories from the wives of prisoners of war and the military widows. We had Bill Shepard, pilot and commemorative Air Force Red Tail Squadron leader and vice president of education of the commemorative Air Force Red Tails, keeper of the history of the World War II Tuskegee Airmen, the first 
black flying unit trained at Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. It's fun to remember that Eleanor Roosevelt was a great fan of the Tuskegee Airmen and insisted on taking a ride in a plane with one of them. She became friends with them and wrote over the years. Last week, we celebrated a United Nations Veterans Christmas Package, gift-wrapped in a veteran story about the last World War II Commander-in-Chief, our most recently departed, George Herbert Walker Bush. Today, the Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. family will be exposed to veteran stories not often a part of memorial conversations. I did a lot of research and discovered that I could bring to you stories that are on the fringe in the voices of those who experienced them. After our break, you will hear contemporary and historical conversations that may spark curiosity, sometimes anger, sometimes pride, and or commitment to be a game changer helping to resolve the issues where our help is obviously needed. So grab a snack, get comfortable, and stay close. This is Radio Fairfax, free-form programming created by the people for the people of Fairfax County, Virginia. Call us or email us, 703-560-TALK or radiofairfax at fcac.org. And we are back. What you're about to hear is a collection of stories, news stories, informative stories, stories that may make you a little angry, as I said before, but most importantly, stories that may move your heart and mind into a place where you're willing to help to be a part of the solution. In recent years, the VA has developed a reputation for red tape, long wait times, and lapses in care. So we asked you to share your stories about getting the care you need from the VA. Hey there, NPR. My name is Matt Tibbetts, retired Army Sergeant. This is Clayton MacArthur. I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. My name is Christina Verderosa. I'm an Army veteran. Marine Corps veteran with PTSD. I am a Vietnam veteran with three different service-connected disabilities. We have some of the best doctors in the world. We just don't have enough of them. My care was so bad that they couldn't even perform the necessary surgeries to save my life, and they had to outsource it. Tell me you don't have wait times when you set up something in the civilian world. My experience with VA healthcare has been pretty good, actually. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports on Veterans Affairs, and he joins us now. Hey, Quill. Hi, Lulu. I want to start with a pretty simple question. How many people get their care through the VA, and what determines how people qualify? Sure. There, there are about 20 million vets in the United States, most of them from earlier eras, World War II, Vietnam, when there was a draft. About 9 million of them are enrolled in VA health care. About 6 million of those are sort of regular yearly users of VA health care. That's, that's a huge system. 
Yeah, it is. It's the largest single-payer uh, system in the country. Most vets can qualify for it uh, if they uh, have a service-connected injury. If they are five years after having served in the recent wars, they can make it. There's also an income threshold. So the VA more or less says if you're a vet, you should apply and and. We'll, we'll let you know if you're eligible, but most many vets are. All right. I want to have you listen to some of the calls that we got. We got a ton of messages like this one from Joyce Davenport of Akalawaha, Florida. Let's listen. I have been a patient of the VA since my discharge back in the 70s, and I have had only wonderful experiences with them. They have gotten me through some very rough times. I've received 100% of my medical care from them, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate them being there. Uh, I should say the vast majority of the people who called in were really happy with their VA care. Are vets mostly satisfied? Yeah, and I can hear the surprise in your voice, and that's, uh, I suppose, partly due to the fact that negative headlines are what really run the media. So uh, No. uh, Yes, (laughs) it's true. I'm not surprised by that at all. Even people who are having problems, say, the bureaucracy of getting their care or getting a disability rating, getting things sort of getting in the door... They will say, well, but my doc at the VA is wonderful. So VA in, in studies rates as good or better than the private sector in most areas of health care. Although the question really is compared to what? What care would this veteran be getting in the private sector if the VA wasn't there? Okay, we're going to come to that in a minute. But first, you mentioned something, which is that the VA has gotten a lot of negative press, long wait times, shortages of doctors. And uh, we got calls about that, too. Listen. My name is Mark Coyas, and I am a Marine Corps veteran calling from Denver, Colorado. I think that the VA is overworked, understaffed, and underpaid. With the state of the world and how much our veterans sacrifice for us, with so little in return, the status quo is unacceptable for both them and VA caregivers. Okay, so what have been the biggest problems? The VA is a massive bureaucracy. It's got 360,000 employees. They literally invented the term red tape at VA. And there were horrible backlogs uh, when a lot of recent vets were coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2014, a scandal kind of uh, came to a head about senior managers who had been lying about their statistics, about how fast they were seeing veterans. And there were some somewhat misleading headlines about veterans who were dying while they were waiting for care. And that brought about calls for reform, which were quite genuine, but also somewhat politically motivated, where VA healthcare, which is the largest example of government-run healthcare in the country, became kind of a proxy battle for people in Congress who love the idea of government healthcare against people who hate the idea of government-run healthcare. There's been a lot of effort made to improve veterans' care, and this is a bipartisan issue. Congress passed legislation a few years ago to make it easier for veterans to access that private care. Can you bring us up to speed on this? What what does it mean for the VA system? So, again, in response to this scandal in 2014, Congress passed a law called the Veterans Choice Act. They wanted to get something set up quick, but as a result, it, it's been a real mixed bag. It was a system so that veterans, if they had been waiting too long or if they lived too far from a VA, they could just go out to a private doctor get their care and the VA would pay for it. The result in many cases was just another maddening layer of red tape. Sometimes it took longer to get an appointment in the private sector than it would have originally at the VA. Um, But the VA's always done some referrals for private care. 
this month, President Trump signed an order extending the Veterans Choice Program just as kind of a stopgap because it was about to expire in August. But we're expecting Congress and the VA to work on a way to streamline this process, and they say they're going to pass that sometime in the fall. I want to play you this message we got from Anna Smith, who's worried about the VA's future. I fear that some changes that people are proposing, such as privatizing parts of it and that sort of thing, is just going to ruin a good deal for those of us who uh, are lucky enough to be able to use the, the services of the VA. So you've talked about this political football of people pro and against sort of socialized medicine, if you will. What kind of support is there for privatization? So no one will say they want privatization. All of the veterans organizations say that they're against it. The new uh, secretary of the VA, Dr. David Shulkin, says he's against privatization. Now, that doesn't stop uh, some people from claiming that there's sort of a Trojan horse here where this Veterans Choice Program of, of allowing vets to go into the private sector is an attempt to bleed resources away from the VA into private care, which is much more expensive, and that would sap the VA's resources and, and make the care even worse and lead to this sort of spiral. The VA is supposed to be this sort of holy vow to take care of veterans. Abraham Lincoln said that it was it was created to, for those who've borne the battle and their widow and their orphan. On the other side are people who say, well, the VA can be a lot leaner with strategic use of the private sector in remote places, in places where there's too much demand on their clinics. This is the battle that we're going to see continue to play itself out with a lot of people who sincerely studied uh, VA healthcare, and then a lot of people who have a political agenda as well. All right, that's NPR's Quill Lawrence. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lulu. And next week on The Call-In, we want to hear your stories and questions about airline travel. How has flying been recently? Do you have any tips or tricks for navigating airlines and airports? If you work for an airline, tell us about your job. What questions do you have about the airline industry and where it's headed? Call in at 202-216-9217. Leave us a voicemail with your full name, where you're from, and your experience, and we may use it on the air. That number again, 202-216-9217. The U.S. government says it will stop kicking the family members of veterans out of a caregiver program. The Department of Veterans Affairs offers support to family members who quit their jobs to look after wounded veterans, of whom there are many in this country. Last month, NPR News reported the government was unfairly dropping many people from the program, including Alicia Graham, who cares for her wounded husband. It's not even like, oh, we dropped you a tear because we think he doesn't need as much help. No, we think he's totally fine and he doesn't need any help. I'm insulted for him. I'm insulted for him because I know what he struggles with. Now the department has responded to that story by our colleague Quill Lawrence. It has stopped rejecting caregivers for now. No one else is being kicked off the program until the VA completes a review. Quill Lawrence is here with an update on that story. Hi, Quill. Hey, Steve. So what kind of assistance has this been providing for people who care for loved ones? It's set up for veterans who need care with daily living. They can't get through the day because they could be a danger to themselves or they can't complete a, a regular daily task like mm. eating or going to the bathroom. And it's a really popular program for these people, usually women, who've had to quit their jobs to work full-time as their caregivers for their wounded veteran. I'd been hearing for over a year about people getting dumped from the program, and every time I sort of checked it out with VA and other organizations, they say, no, we're growing the program. There are more people being added. Now, that turned out to be true, 
But at the same time that the program across the country was growing as a whole, some VAs were dumping caregivers in huge numbers. And that VA is sort of infamous for being erratic from place to place. Um, while this program was growing, Fayetteville, which is where Jim and Alicia Graham go, had dropped hundreds of caregivers from the program over that same period of time. So this program effectively hires loved ones to be the caregivers for their loved ones, but some people are getting dropped. How did the VA explain that? They didn't really have an explanation. They didn't seem to be aware of these inconsistencies from station to station. I mean, they honestly, they didn't seem to be aware of their own data that I compiled. And what did they do after they found out from you? Uh, Twelve days later, they suspended the revocations, meaning that they aren't going to kick anybody else off. And they suspended it for three weeks and then extended another, that another six weeks. I haven't been able to get them to respond to my request for clarification about what exactly they're they're evaluating during this time. And the key thing also is that their review doesn't seem to be helping people who were, you know, perhaps unfairly kicked off, like Alicia Graham and her husband Jim. Oh, they're not going to review past cases. Right. I mean, there's an appeals process that they can go through if they think they've been unfairly kicked off. But as far as I can tell from the VA, they aren't looking at people in the past who've been kicked off. They're just evaluating them for the future. How are veterans responding to this news? Well, they were very happy when they heard that uh, VA was going to stop kicking people off because, as I said, it's a a very popular program. But others are are worried about what happened when it resumes. I I talked to a couple in uh, South Texas, Ed and Karen Mateka. He's a double amputee. They were both deployed to Afghanistan. They're both vets. He lost both legs uh, to a bomb in Afghanistan. Their picture is actually on the Pentagon's caregiver resource book. They're on the front cover. And they've been told that their rejection letter is just waiting and it's going to come as soon as this uh, pause, this review is over. Quill, thanks for following this story. Thank you, Steve. That's NPR's Quill Lawrence. Here's a phrase you hate to hear and is hard to say. Homeless veterans. New government estimates on homelessness show that on a given night, more than half a million Americans are on the street or in shelters, a slight increase from last year. Here's NPR's Quill Lawrence. The government counts the homeless every year on a cold night in January. The idea is that more people will come into the shelters that way and be easier to tally. Hugo Mendez may well have been one of those counted last January when he was homeless. You know where the riverbed is? By Chapman and the 57th Freeway? I was right there. Mendez joined the Army in 1994. When he got out in 2000, he says he wasn't ready for civilian life. By 2008, he was homeless. Until this year, when the charity American Family Housing got him a place in Orange County. Oh, it's like the Ritz, like uh, shower. I get to shower every day. The project is called Potter's Lane. It's an ultra-modern-looking building made from recycled shipping containers. Fifteen formerly homeless vets are living here in brand-new studio apartments, fully furnished, big windows, and somehow warm inside the solid steel walls. I've never seen, like, a, a metal, basically solid metal. Yeah, it's, like, really nice. Since we spoke, Mendez moved into a bigger apartment, also run by American Family Housing, which is planning larger projects, stacking up the steel containers like Lego blocks in the city of Los Angeles. Brand new apartments for homeless vets might seem extravagant, but in L.A. it might be the only solution, with a less than 3% vacancy rate in its rental market. That's one reason Los Angeles saw homelessness rise this past year. And with such a large population, Los Angeles alone accounted for the entire uptick in veterans' homelessness. If you took out the increase in L.A., the number would have gone down nationwide. And that's what VA Secretary David Shulkin would like to focus on. 
the reason why we've been able to reduce the number of homeless veterans across the country by over 50% now since 2010 is we have found a formula that we think works and that we'll continue to both support with all of our efforts. That formula was to work together with local organizations in cities and states across the country that know their communities. Use an approach called Housing First, which means getting veterans indoors before trying to solve their other problems like substance abuse, and then massively fund it through HUD and the VA. The VA declared in 2009 there would be an end to veterans' homelessness by 2015. Then it said the end of 2015. Those deadlines passed, and there are still about 40,000 homeless veterans on any given night across the country. But advocates say even with the deadline for that goal come and gone, the formula is still working. Melissa Tyner is with the Inner City Law Center in L.A. I don't think that the, the expiration of the goal really you know, affected us here in our, in our community. There was still this, this aim to, to try to raise veterans. Prior to this goal being set, and I think it might still be true, but we were the homeless veteran capital of, of the nation. That is to say that L.A. has housed more veterans than many other states and cities combined. And the city did pass a $1.2 billion bond to build housing for the chronically homeless, including veterans. But the number of newly homeless vets is outpacing their efforts. Outside of the L.A. numbers, national advocates say progress is slow but steady. Catherine Monet of the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans says the Trump administration has increased funding and appears to be mostly staying the course. I'll tell you, the new administration has said all of the right things, and it seems like they're committed to maintaining some of the evidence-based practices. That said, I think I'd be cautious about you know, some of the slower changes that we're seeing at VA. Monet is talking about the VA's plan to give regional medical directors more control over their budgets. That won't affect money for homeless housing, but it could mean cutting back on the staff who support those veterans. Advocates, as well as a bipartisan group of senators, have objected. But this week, VA says it intends to go ahead with it. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. President Trump has signed an executive order to help more military veterans get mental health care from the Department of Veterans Affairs. Suicide prevention is a top priority for the VA. An estimated 20 veterans take their own lives every single day. The rate is particularly high among younger vets who don't always have access to VA health care when they leave the service. The executive order will enroll them for VA mental health care automatically. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. At a White House ceremony, the president said he was fulfilling a promise to reform the VA and make sure veterans get the help they need. Every single veteran who needs mental health and suicide prevention services will receive them immediately upon their separation from military service. They get out of the military and they had nobody to talk to, nobody to speak to. And it's been a very sad situation, but we're taking care of them. At his side, VA Secretary David Shulkin explained the importance of support when troops are in transition from active duty to civilian life. That 12-month period after you leave service is the highest risk for suicide, almost one and a half to two times highest risk in that first 12 months when you leave the service. Most veterans have no trouble returning to civilian life, but the VA says the minority that needs help often doesn't reach out to VA or other services. And veterans are not automatically enrolled. They have to qualify in one of several ways, like having an injury connected to their service. Until now, says Shulkin. Currently, up until your executive order, only 40% of those service members had coverage in the VA to get mental health. Now, 100% 
we'll have that coverage. President Trump also took the opportunity to tout his administration's achievements on VA reform, including a 24-hour hotline for veterans and changes to make it easier to fire corrupt or incompetent staff. We will not rest until all of America's great veterans receive the care they have earned through their incredible service and sacrifice to our country. The order will go into effect on March 9th after the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security and VA design a system to seamlessly transfer vets from the Pentagon's care to the VA, a challenge that neither agency has been able to overcome despite decades of plans and policy. While the executive order drew bipartisan praise, several Democrats raised concerns about a lack of details, specifically how the VA will absorb the hundreds of thousands of service members who get discharged each year when the VA's mental health care system is already severely understaffed. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Drive by an American Legion post and you may see a black flag which says P-O-W-M-I-A. You might see that flag on a lawn or on the back of a motorcycle. The flag was designed in the 1970s to keep attention on troops who were missing from the Vietnam War. And it remains common even though recent American conflicts have seen virtually no POWs unaccounted for. Alaska Public Media's Zachariah Hughes looks at what the flag symbolizes to a younger generation of veterans. Twenty-six degrees as members of the service high school band shift from foot to foot trying to stay warm. They're bringing up the tail end of a parade for veterans, just ahead of a clown walking on stilts, a reindeer led by a leash, and a cadre of older bikers. Flying behind the motorcycles is the black POW MIA flag with a white silhouette of a young man trapped behind wire and a menacing guard tower. The text underneath says, you are not forgotten. And the image is everywhere. Patches, flagpoles, there's even a Dodge Charger with a paint job of the somber emblem taking up the car's entire side. The license plate reads P-O-W-M-I-A. And it belongs to someone from a local American Legion post where Woody Quackenbush is a member. I mean, it, during the Vietnam War and stuff, it sent people out on patrol, they didn't know where they were. Quackenbush has a long gray beard and is standing next to a beige three-wheeled hog. He enlisted in the Army in 1962 when he was 17 years old. He says during and after the Vietnam War, the POW flag was a way to draw attention to soldiers the government didn't work hard enough to recover. We're still trying to find uh, a lot of people that didn't come back, and they don't really have any records of where they are or what they're going to look for. Once in a great while, they find somebody, but uh, it's, a, it's a shame. Officially, there are still 1,602 Americans unaccounted for from the Vietnam War. That's a lot, but it pales in comparison to past conflicts, where neither the science nor the will was in place to recover the dead. From World War II alone, there are nearly 73,000 service members still listed as missing. But this is an accounting of warfare that's becoming extinct. In the last three decades, the total number of American service members left unrecovered by the military is six. Yeah, that's one from the Brooks Range. I, I, Roger Sparks recently retired after more than two decades serving as a Marine infantryman and later a pararescue jumper who deployed to some of the most rugged parts of Afghanistan. Now he works as a tattoo artist in a suburb of Anchorage. The conflicts that we're fighting now, you know, it's not an atmosphere that you're being held captive. Sparks is a highly decorated vet who did a total of 10 combat tours. 
He says that for many younger veterans, the POW flag no longer marks a literal absence. I almost view that as, well, that's their era of, of symbolism. Whereas now I look at that and I'm like, well, that was for them. You know, like, like I can really identify with the severity of their experiences, but I don't feel I have ownership of that. Sparks grew up in Texas, surrounded by Vietnam vets. Those men were draftees who generally did one combat deployment. Today's volunteer military is made up of people more like Sparks. And he sees the country's relationship with its wars as marked less by fervent support or opposition than by general indifference. Part of why Sparks thinks the POW flag resonates today with so many veterans, service members, and families is less for the silhouetted young man behind barbed wire than the words below about not being forgotten. I think that when you look at the flag, you can say, well, that's patriotism. But when you look at that POW MIA flag, it's more of combat loss, you know, like the reaping, just horror of what has been paid for this country to go on. And I think that's why people feel so strongly about it. When Sparks started tattooing guys in Afghanistan, they'd sometimes do sessions right after returning to base from pararescue operations, almost like a ceremony to process what they'd experienced. He says no one's asked for the POW insignia. For NPR News, I'm Zachariah Hughes in Anchorage. At the Invictus Games, I mean, really every athlete has a story. Now, this is an event that's a Paralympic-style competition for injured servicemen and women. It is underway in Toronto. This is an international competition founded by Prince Harry and inspired by similar events like the Warrior Games here in the U.S. The field, more than 400 competitors, includes Jason Caswell. When you get hurt, you go into a place that all you see is, I can't be me anymore. Caswell is a technical sergeant in the United States Air Force. This week, he is using his prosthetic leg to swim, lift weights, also throw a discus. Last year, he even deployed to Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. He says none of that seemed possible just a few years ago. While he was stationed overseas, Caswell suffered a severe leg injury in a rugby game, and the recovery did not go as planned. I had five surgeries, and at no fault of anybody, but something went wrong with all five surgeries. It's one of those things that I always say life happens. I was sitting on the couch. I had a um, fixture on my leg that they were trying to line up the bones. Well, my son wanted to go jump on the trampoline. He was like, Daddy, can we go outside and, and you come jump on the trampoline like you used to? And I was, Charlie, I, I can't do that right now because I've got this on my leg. And that's when he looked at me and he actually told me, I want my old daddy back. So that actually hurt. And I actually became suicidal at that point in time in my life. And talking with my wife, that's when we realized that it's, it's time. I mean, nobody wants to lose a limb, but since the amputation, I've returned to duty, I'm pain-free, <laughs> I've deployed, I can do everything that I need to do as a military member and as a father and a husband. This adaptive sports program, it's given, it's given me back, honestly, is what it's done. My kids love it. They love getting down and playing sitting volleyball with me. They love, they love playing wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby. And now, of course, with my prosthetic, I, was, I can get on the trampoline anytime he wants. So whenever he asks, I'm on the trampoline. <laughs> Come into the Invictus Games. You're going to see 
different countries hugging each other. You're going to see different countries motivating each other, even if you're in last place. Because believe me, I've been in last place on some of these races, and I, I want to give up again. I go back into that shell of when I was injured, and I just want to stop and just quit. But when you hear the cheers, when you hear your competitors yelling for you, that's when you find that drive, that, that motivation that we all need throughout life. My life has culminated into this big event and I finally can say that I have found Jason Caswell again. I have found Charlie and Raven Caswell's dad and Tammy Caswell's husband. This is who I am and this is, this is what I am and it's been a long journey but I, I'm back to where I need to be. That is Air Force Technical Sergeant Jason Caswell. He's competing in this week's Invictus Games in Toronto. The new movie, Thank You for Your Service, is about coming home, specifically what it's like for soldiers who come home after serving during the surge in Iraq in 2007. The movie is based on the book of the same name by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Finkel. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair, and a note, some of the descriptions in her story are graphic. There's a scene in the movie in a therapist's office. Sergeant Adam Schumann and his then-wife Saskia need help. The therapist looks at Schumann's military record. Two Army Commendation Medals, an Army Achievement Medal. Impressive. You never told me about those. Saskia is the one who insisted Schumann get help. The real Adam Schumann says, yes, she did. She's a firecracker, yeah. Uh... Even though she's my ex-wife, I owe a lot to her. For her looking at me when I came home and, and poking me and going, what the f is wrong with you? Schumann did three deployments in Iraq, led a battalion during the surge, lost friends, came home traumatized and plagued with guilt. David Finkel covered the Iraq war for the Washington Post. He spent several months embedded with Schumann's battalion. And by every measure of what a soldier should be, um, he was a great soldier. In April 2007, Schumann and a group of his soldiers were on a dangerous operation in a village where bombs had been coming from. While they were on the roof of a building, one of his men, Michael Emery, was shot in the head by a sniper. Finkel says Schumann carried Emery, a big guy, down the stairs on his back. Emery was, was bleeding out of his head, and Adam had him on his back. And just because of the angle of things, uh, the blood coming out of Emery's head, kept flowing into uh, into Adam's mouth as it was gulping for air. So that was April. And uh, when I met and began reporting seriously on Adam six months later, now it was October, he was about to come home, uh, one of the problems is he could not stop tasting Emery's blood. It was one of the episodes that haunted Schumann long after he left Iraq. I put us on that roof. Those are my orders. He took a bullet for it. And at the same time he's carrying the burden of those memories, he's also trying to adjust to life back in the U.S. with his wife and two children. He gets up early to make breakfast. How long have you been up? It's already 4 p.m. in Baghdad. You guys ready for some hotcakes? Thank You for Your Service was written and directed by Jason Hall, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of American Sniper. In previous wars, these guys came home on slow ships. And it was two months with these guys in the hold talking about their experiences and sort of processing this journey that they'd gone through in war. And now it's uh, they'll be in, in the sandbox one day, 
Next day, they're at home cooking pancakes for their family, and it's um, it's a real quick turnaround. I take your gun, I take your uniform, everything you had, and you're left with a, a couple of medals, some pieces of paper, and some photographs. Adam Schumann. And you do feel alone, and then you start isolating because you miss these these moments with, with your buddies and your camaraderie, and it, it, can, it can be severely lonely in your own mind is, is probably the worst place you can be. Adam Schumann came very close to taking his own life. The movie reflects the reality many vets face when seeking help from the VA. Packed waiting rooms, long wait times to see a therapist. As Schumann puts it in the movie, This could give me PTSD. Director Jason Hall knows these stories might not be fun to watch, but he believes it's important to understand what the day-to-day is like for a lot of Iraqi war vets. Until we can understand what we're asking them to do and what we've put them through, we're still going to keep sending them off. Meantime, Adam Schumann says he and his buddies depicted in the film are doing well. For a while, Schumann worked as a peer counselor at the same rehab center where he was treated for PTSD. I kind of felt like a squad leader again. You know, I had my own room down in the basement, and, uh, and the guys knew I was there, and they would just come down, knock on the door, and just chat. And, uh, and one of the guys, he texts me every day, I love you, Adam. I text him back, I love you too. And just, just that little... I know he's there for me, and, I, and he knows I'm there for him no matter what, so it's great. Schumann was very involved in the making of Thank You for Your Service. He has a cameo, and when filmmakers heard him singing an old marching cadence he learned in basic training, they got Bruce Springsteen to turn it into the movie's theme song. Schumann sings backup. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. American soldiers fall in line, and their unity is part of their pride. They dress the same, they march the same, they even eat the same food and have the same haircut. But outside of public view, do they treat each other the same? In a place where unity is strength, and a person supposedly survives and advances on their own merits, does race matter? It sure did in Vietnam. They were everyday Joes wanting to live the American dream, and all of a sudden they found themselves in Vietnam and then would come back home and wouldn't have the same rights that other Americans had. You're trying to fight someone else's freedom and you don't have freedom of your own, it's your own country there. There's two things that I learned from my mother that I still remember. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And God help those who help themselves. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, African-American soldiers and the Vietnam War. While the Vietnam War raged overseas, unrest over civil rights was growing at home. For many African-American soldiers, the two conflicts were tough to reconcile. Imagine leaving 1960s Alabama, only to arrive in Vietnam and see a Confederate flag flying. Or serving 22 years in the Air Force, only to be disobeyed by subordinates because of the color of your skin. Or putting your life on the line for your country, only to come home in uniform and be forced to sit in the back of the bus. 
On the front lines in Vietnam, whites and blacks fought side by side as brothers, looking out for one another. But when they returned to base, those friendships often fell apart. James Westheider is author of Fighting on Two Fronts, African Americans in the Vietnam War. I spoke with him about the racial tension that traveled with American soldiers across the Pacific. Jim, conventional wisdom says racial strife in America in this time was lessened on the battlefront in Vietnam, where the men bonded as they fought a common enemy. In fighting on two fronts, you found race relations for Vietnam soldiers to be much more complex. Uh, Yes, it was true for combat units that there was less racism. Away from the battlefield, there was often very stark racial separation. There was racial animosity. And on several bases, stateside and overseas, there were racial gang fights that broke out. Did you come to understand that it actually shocked the military, as well as the officers, that this had exploded on them during the Vietnam era? There had been a sense of denial of the growing problem earlier, but when they started having large-scale race riots like at Camp Lejeune, even Cameron Bay in Vietnam, it did shock them into reality. There's also strong evidence that African Americans are being criminalized and jailed for things their white counterparts were not. Um, And they were. The military actually admitted that. They did a study, and they found that African Americans were, in fact, being arrested, tried, punished, and imprisoned in disproportionate numbers compared to whites. The military has what's known as non-judicial punishment, and those are minor infractions, uh, being late for work detail, hair not... Uh, cut to military regulation, things like that. African-Americans were far more susceptible to be written up for things like that than were whites. African-Americans were also far more susceptible to have general court-martial charges brought against them. And I want to point out that African-Americans that contested the charges and demanded uh, court-martial They were acquitted at a higher rate than were white offenders. And the military itself admitted that this was evidence that African-Americans were often being unfairly prosecuted. What percentage of the military leaders were African-American? How many of those were officers? Mm, Not that many. That was another problem. Even though the armed forces were making a concerted effort to bring in more black officers, the officer corps averaged only about 2 to 4% African-American. There was only one African-American battalion commander. There was really a lack of black leadership in the military administration, in Pentagon, and on the field in Vietnam. Tech Sergeant Ron Basham was one of the few black commanders, and Ron found himself in more than one fight with white subordinates who didn't respect his command. He says some men disobeyed him and blatantly disregarded orders because of his skin color. And sometimes that got them killed. Well, you say, I need this job done. I, I mean, I expect you to do this. And I said, well, you know, why did I get to listen to you so-and-so didn't say I had to do it? I said, well, you're not under him. You're under me. And then they would do a half job. Now you got to penalize people to do the job right because you have an idiot that doesn't want to do the job right because he has bias, which he should not have had when he raised his hand to get into the Air Force. But some of them chose not to listen, so they're not here now. 
A lot of them died. Hey, just simple as clean your weapon. As soon as you come out of a firefight, you, you clean it immediately so it doesn't jam or blow up in your face. But you'd be surprised how many guys had weapon blow up in their face because they didn't want to clean their weapon. They did not want to respect the stripes because of the color that was wearing them. They figured John Wayne could give them a better answer. Vietnam was the first fully integrated major war the U.S. had waged. But fully integrated mainly meant more integrated than things were back home. Chris Moore spent most of 1970 in Vietnam as part of the Army Engineers 46th Battalion. Growing up, uh, we had to sit in the uh, balcony when my brother and I would go to the movies on Saturdays. Uh, that didn't happen in the Army. It was fully integrated. You go to the mess halls, you ate the same chow. Uh, you know, you didn't see that kind of overt segregation, but the subtle things were still there. He means things like Confederate flags. A lot of guys flew Confederate flags. My answer to that was I went down in the motor pool once and I knew a Vietnamese who was a pretty good artist and I had him paint two black fists on the bumper of my truck. Well, the platoon sergeant who was in charge of uh, maintenance there saw it and he went hog wild. I said, if they want to fly their Confederate flags, I'm going to run black fist on my bumper. So maybe even before Colin Kaepernick was uh, kneeling down, uh, we found ways to subtly and not so subtly fight back against that kind of racism. Um, there was one base in Vietnam that, that um, the flagpole would have the U.S. flag and the Confederate flag. Samuel Black is director of African-American programs at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He curated a traveling exhibit about African-Americans in the Vietnam War called Soul Soldiers. Didn't the military clamp down on flying the Confederate flag? They did eventually, but, you know, a choice like that, what goes up on a flagpole, that's an officer's decision. And that's where it became rather difficult. Rules and regulations in the military is all a matter of who is in power to enforce them and whether they will enforce them. To take it back a little bit further, in 1948, when President Truman had initiated Executive Order 9981 to integrate all branches of the U.S. military, a few years later, we were fighting in the Korean War, and it was still segregated units. There were some generals, including MacArthur, who refused to integrate. You can have an executive order from the highest office, the commander-in-chief of the military, the president of the United States, and it's still those orders still not followed. So the same thing was taking place to a smaller degree in Vietnam in terms of flying Confederate flags and other types of things. Black veterans talk about simmering frustration from seemingly minor things that really did make a difference. What magazines were available to read? What kind of food was served? What music did they play on military radio? Always, it seemed to them, there was a preference for white America. So many of the hurtful racial tensions were small, but felt big and really served to divide the men. Talk to me about some of the ones you lay out in your work. For instance, the special handshakes called daps, which became a source of friction. Oh, the dapping uh, among African Americans. 
the term dap is a corruption of a Vietnamese word that actually means beautiful. And it was a ritualized handshake done by African-Americans. Many of the signs, one indicated love for your brother. Another, a slashing movement across the throat, indicated death to MPs. But it was a sign of bonding among the brothers in Vietnam. And it often caused friction because African-Americans might start doing an extended dap, for example, in the chow line. And whites behind them didn't want to wait. Words would be exchanged. Next thing you know, a fight would break out over something like that. That's, that's back in the rear with the gear. Uh, that's where the dap got long. This again is Army veteran Chris Moore. Uh, I got frustrated by it one time when I was in 90th replacement getting ready to leave. And I said, man, I'm buying everybody a Coke. And I stood up to go get a Coke at the bar, and it took me half an hour because I couldn't pass the table without giving up the dap. And then I came back with five Cokes in my hand and had to give up TT dap to the same guy. So sometimes it got it got, even got out of hand for us, to tell you the truth. But it was just an elaborate greeting, a way of saying, hello, soul brother, I'm here with you, and, and we're in this together, and we should stick together. And that's what it was. Haircuts, too, became a source of contention. Most military barbers didn't know how to cut black hair. Here's James Westheider. Uh, you obviously had to have a regulation haircut, so this could often lead to petty violations for African Americans, where it did not lead for the same thing for whites. And one of the things a lot of black personnel wanted was more, not just barbers, but other personnel that were familiar with black needs. Uh, it was the same thing in the PX, the post exchange, and places like that. There were very few black hair care products, for example. And black magazines, such as Jet or Ebony, were usually in extremely short supply. So African Americans felt that they were basically serving in a white military that it wasn't geared to their needs. No, we cut each other's hair. Uh, there was always somebody in the black community, even when I was in college at Grambling, uh, most of us didn't go to a regular barbershop when there were black barbershops, so we cut each other's hair. Um, and that's just out of necessity. Uh, white guy didn't know what to do with our hair. Plus, the most we wanted was a line. We were, we were trying to grow big afros it was a symbol of pride. Having an afro was a symbol of pride. It let people know who you were and, and that you weren't about to take uh, a bunch of gump off somebody, even if they outranked you. And we'd let it get as long as we could before some major or colonel would tell us to cut it. Music also showed the racial divide. Jim Westheider says black soldiers desperately miss the soul music they'd been listening to and connecting with at home. Keep in mind, during the Vietnam War era, really, that generation spoke for itself through their music. Music was instrumental to the civil rights movement, to the protests of the 60s, and to the service personnel in Vietnam. So the type of music you were able to listen to was extremely important to you. 
and this was a major cause of friction. Well, I found very little African-American music when I was over there, you know. This is Ron Basham again. You went into the jaw hall, you heard country western music. You had some, they had to do that because it probably the top ten, you know, but otherwise than that, it was primarily country western music most of the time. So you were being ignored, you didn't exist. 23 hours a day, they catered to other tastes. Uh, there was one hour a day, somewhere around 1 or 2 o'clock, that the Soul Show came on. Uh, generally, you could not listen to it, but if we were ever in for stand down, uh, we made sure to turn the radio to the Soul Show because it was the only time of the day that you could get that kind of music on Armed Forces Radio. Most of the time, we had our own music. A lot of guys had reel-to-reel tape decks. It would be blasting, and that would be the hooch where everybody would hang out where the music was playing. So not being able to get a haircut or listen to the music, we self-segregated, and we took care of it ourselves. Wow. Wow. What story were you drawn to? What did you learn new? How can you help? Will you? These past two months have been a very special journey for me. Historically, my, my father was a veteran, a disabled veteran. Didn't meet him until I was four years old because of the disability. He was away in a veteran's hospital. The people, the men and women I met these past two months, I gotta say, thank you. I love you. I respect you. I will never forget your authenticity and your vulnerability. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to next time. I'm here and I'm listening. Bye now.